Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the People Power Politics Podcast, brought to you by CEDA, the Center for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. My name is Petra Alderman. I'm a research fellow at CEDA and I'm going to be your host for this episode. It is my great pleasure to welcome our first guest of the series, Professor Dan Slater. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks for having me, Petra. Dan is James Oren Murphin Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan. He specializes in the politics and history of dictatorship and democracy with a regional focus on Southeast Asia. I am very excited that we get to kick off this podcast series with Dan talking about Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is often overlooked in political science scholarship, but there is plenty we can learn from the countries in this region. And one of the countries that is worth talking about is Indonesia. Earlier this year, Dan has published a great article on Indonesia in the Journal of Democracy that is called What Indonesian Democracy Can Teach the World. So Dan, tell us what makes Indonesia an interesting case for the study of democracy and why should we look east for examples of democratic survival in this age of democratic decline and increasing rates of autocratization? Well, as you say, the fact that we're seeing these rising rates of autocratization around the world really says we should be looking in every direction we possibly can. And when we have examples that are north, south, east, west, we should look wherever we can. So the argument I make in the article is that I don't try to make the case that Indonesia is a model, but I do think Indonesia is an example. And Indonesia is an example of of several really important things. One thing that it shows is that a very large Muslim majority, you know, the largest Muslim country in the world, a country with really very violent, brutal, colonial and authoritarian legacies, long history of military involvement in politics, not an ally of the United States or any other Western power, which often gets used as a way of kind of writing off some of these cases of democracy in in Asia in particular, and lower middle income, lots of separatist uh, conflicts historically. So all kinds of ways in which Indonesia is a very unlikely democracy. We might face major challenges to become a democracy, but really for 25 years now, it has been obviously far from perfect, but it has been a, a relatively stable, what we usually call a consolidated democracy, 25 years, that has, I think, shown that it can manage the worst ethno-religious tensions. It can you know, maintain economic growth. Actually, the World Bank just a few days ago upgraded it to an upper middle income country, although it was certainly lower middle income when it uh, transitioned in the late 1990s. And I think Indonesia is also sort of interesting and telling because as an example, because what it shows is that democracy doesn't mean the end of the road for old authoritarian elites necessarily. And I think one of the reasons there's so much resistance to democracy is because authoritarian rulers and people who support the authoritarian regime think that democracy will be the death knell for them. And Indonesia, like other cases in East Asia, I would argue, really show that kind of the leaders of an authoritarian regime can guide a democratization process in which they remain very prominent players under democracy. And therefore the costs and the risks of democratization aren't nearly as high as people often suspect. If I was to tell you, let's go back to the transition point in Indonesian history, and that would take us back to the 1990s. And perhaps at the beginning of that decade, Indonesia wouldn't have been seen as the place for democratization. Back then, at least if we look regionally at Southeast Asia, it was Thailand that was considered more of a beacon of democracy. So how did Indonesia break with its authoritarian past? 
what were the catalysts there? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's well put, because I do think that as of the late 1990s, you know, Thailand was probably seen as the most likely to be a, a vibrant democracy in Southeast Asia. I think you know, Turkey was seen as being the most you know, likely to be a vibrant democracy in the Muslim world. Indonesia has certainly, I think, outperformed Thailand and Turkey in those respects, as well as many other you know, possible analogs. That's another point I make in the article is that you know, for all its problems, Indonesia has really outperformed expectations and places we would compare it to. So how did this happen? Well, the main catalyst for democratic transition was the Asian financial crisis in 1998. And the Indonesian economy was really, really hammered. And in large measure, because it was ruled by a very personalistic dictator, uh, Suharto, a military man who had ruled for over 30 years, and his you know, increasingly unpredictable management of the Indonesian economy, the worsening cronyism uh, had sort of led to a collapse of confidence in you know, Indonesia's capacity to survive the financial crisis. And so in the wake of the financial crisis, you had major uh, student-led protests around the country. And basically what happened by May 1998 was the political elite in Indonesia essentially abandoned Suharto and stopped being willing to defend him. The military, his fellow elites within the ruling party, which is called Golkar, just basically nudged him from power and brought in his vice president. And so that didn't necessarily augur a democratic transition, but just the collapse of one very aging autocrat. You could think about places like Egypt and Sudan and you know, where you see an autocrat removed, but then the military just takes over. So that easily could have happened in Indonesia. What happened next was that the vice president, BJ Habibi, who became president through this uh, resignation, he basically started a process of, kind of top-down democratic reforms, opening up the political process, and they expedited democratic elections to, to June 1999. And that led to Habibi's removal, and it led to the rise of two of the main opposition figures during the authoritarian period, rising to be president and vice president of the country. And so Donald Horowitz, the scholar of, uh, of Indonesia and Malaysia, has called it an inside job because especially the constitutional reform that followed that from 1999 to 2004 was very much handled by political elites themselves. And so you certainly had a case where elites were managing it, but it was against the backdrop, and this is really quite vital, a backdrop of really major societal protest and a pretty strong civil society that takes a lot of ownership for the fate of the country. Yeah, and I really like how you describe it in the article in relation to this point where you say that Indonesian democracy has a founding mother and founding father, and the mother is the civil society that has really pressed the authoritarian elite to break with the autocratic past, but then the autocratic elite is the founding father that still, in large extent, is in power to this date. So what are the key ingredients that have kept Indonesian democracy going thus far? Because we can see in other contexts when you have this managed experience of democracy that's been top down, as you have just described, that sooner or later that could break down and we could see the sort of backsliding or we could see the reversal of the democratizing trend. Well, Indonesia definitely is backsliding for reasons we can discuss, but let's maybe think and talk a little bit about the sources of its strength before we get to that. One aspect in Indonesia that has supported democracy is the fact that Indonesia has a relatively strong state and you know that it was, although not sort of a full-blown developmental state, a la Taiwan or Korea or Singapore or the like, it is certainly, you know, as in you know, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, has served as the basis for relative stability and governance, which makes democracy more likely to survive. That was built 
particularly during the, the new order period. And so that state wasn't built for democratic purposes, but it has been useful for democratic purposes. So that's one aspect. Another is that the way that society is structured, so the way that the cleavages work, so the country is overwhelmingly Muslim, overwhelmingly Islamic, but the Islamic population is deeply divided between two different streams, what are often called traditionalist and modernist streams. And one thing that means is that there's not, I would say, as much anxiety as in some other places that Islam will be kind of you know, swept aside as a source of political legitimacy. It's not a secular country. It's not like India. In India, there's this real sense that secularism and Hinduism are pitted against each other. In Indonesia, it doesn't quite work that way. And the position of Islam is relatively secure. And what that means is that most Muslim voters can vote more on the basis of, well, who's the politician who will serve them the best? Who actually is interested in development? Who's interested in governance? Who won't talk down to them like their children? So there's a way in which Although political Islam is certainly kind of the biggest identity-based issue in Indonesia, it's not quite as hot-fueled as it is in some other contexts. So in some ways, having a society with many cleavages and not just one defining 50-50 you know, cleavage that polarizes the country has given Indonesia some tools for managing polarization that a lot of other similarly positioned countries lack. But despite the fact, as you say, that obviously there are lots of different cleavages, religion has become more of a dominating cleavage over the past few years. And that was demonstrated especially by the infamous Ahok case in 2017. If you could maybe explain what the case was about and how it actually affected the state of Indonesian democracy, I mean, would you say it still has some kind of lasting effects? Sure. So basically what happened, to give a little bit of context here, so after democratization occurred, there wasn't really a strong political opposition anymore. What basically happened was, you know, elections would be held and presidents would be elected, but they would basically share power with all major parties. And so what that meant was is politics was very much non-polarized from really the early 2000s till the, you know, the mid 2010s. And, you know, again, this is something where I think it speaks to Indonesian society. Indonesian society doesn't naturally just sort of polarize and tear apart unless political elites are trying to, you know, kind of push those buttons. And so what happened in 2016 was that the governor of Jakarta, so Jakarta has a governor rather than a mayor, Ahok, as he's known, so ethnic Chinese minority, and was you know, kind of a very popular governor in many respects. But it was, it was very difficult for more conservative elements in Indonesian civil society to accept the fact that a non-Muslim was governor of the capital of the country. So he was accused of insulting the Quran, and it led to a massive swell of protests demanding his resignation. And what ended up happening is the courts are not terribly robust in Indonesia. The legal system is, is pretty weak. Basically, the courts wound up convicting Ahok and imprisoning him. And so he was obviously no longer governor of Jakarta. And uh, so this was kind of a, a pretty frightening, polarizing moment. And this was on the both the heels of and kind of run up to the 2014 and 2019 presidential elections, both of which saw one presidential candidate really trying to use the most kind of divisive, nativistic populist you know, verbiage and mobilization tactics to try to kind of start polarizing Indonesian society for his own benefit. That happened in 2014, 2019, and there's been some rollback from that polarization since then that we can discuss as well. 
When you were talking just before about the, the strains of the democracy, and before that you mentioned that we can see elements of backsliding in Indonesian democracy, what would you see are perhaps the most worrying trends of this backsliding? And what do you say that we have to be particularly careful about and we should be looking out for? I think the most worrisome trend in Indonesia is the same most worrisome trend that we see around the world which is that elected leaders are simply not respecting rights. And what we're seeing is increasingly, it's not so much that elections are faulty or that elections are stolen or elections are fraudulent or, or the like, but all over the world, what we're seeing is that elected leaders simply, they're not hesitant to use their powers to attack their opponents, to punish civil society, to try to intimidate the press and criminalize protest. And the thing in Indonesia is that it's a very, very self-dealing political elite in Indonesia. They're very, very cozy among each other. They're actually much less polarized than political elites in most places. So my biggest worry is under the, the current president, uh, Joko Widodo, who's known as Jokowi, there's been real moves to criminalize protest. And without that check, there's really nothing preventing the political elite from doing something kind of like what's happened in the Philippines since Duterte, which is you basically stop opposing a, a popular president and everybody just goes along with whatever a strong-armed leader wants to do. And that's kind of the scenario that we're staring at in Indonesia more than any other, I think. But Jokowi is stepping down because it's been two terms that he's been Indonesian president for, and there's going to be election in February next year. But when we were talking before about the Ahok case, particularly, and the polarization that it has brought, and you mentioned the 2014 and the 2019 election, the presidential candidate there who was challenging or opposing Jokowi back then was Prabowo Subianto, who's a former military general. And I was wondering, I mean, Prabowo is somebody who is running for the next presidential election. He's a controversial, somewhat polarizing figure and has really tried, as what you said, to use some of these cleavages to polarize Indonesian society. I mean, quite surprisingly, then in 2019, after Jokowi won the presidential election, he brought in then Prabowo as um, a minister of defense, which goes to what you were saying about the elites being cozy and willing to share their power quite widely, which in itself, it's odd, as you said. You probably won't find as many countries where you would have power sharing to such an extent. When we look at Jokowi now stepping down and Indonesia perhaps facing a future under somebody like Prabowo, what could happen then? Yeah, so I think that we do believe Jokowi will step down. He has flirted with the ideas of possibly extending his term, trying to get a third term, partly excused by the fact that COVID was kind of seen as something that prevented him from getting his development policies pushed through. Jokowi is really kind of obsessed with development. So that's really He's not there for the democracy. He's there for the development part of it. In Jokowi's case, and in terms of what follows, yeah, as you say, Jokowi basically rejuvenated, if you will, or kind of rehabilitated, in some sense, Prabowo after his defeat in 2019. So Prabowo Subianto has a terrible human rights record. He was Suharto's son-in-law during the dictatorship. His fingerprints were all over the, the violence that attended uh, Suharto's fall. He was almost certainly trying to position himself to take over power from his father-in-law. He briefly had to go into exile. He was sort of disgraced for a time. He was almost the only disgraced figure from the New Order period, which was what the Suharto regime was called. But Prabowo has bounced back, and he was a vice presidential candidate in 2009, presidential candidate 2014-2019, came perilously close to winning. 
He used incredibly irresponsible rhetoric, hateful nativistic rhetoric in both campaigns. A pluralistic society came together to defeat him both times, happily. Both times he rejected the results of the elections. He insisted that they were stolen from him. By all rights, he should be disqualified from serving for office. But again, in the spirit of Indonesian politics, Jokowi brushed him off and put him on by his side after 2019. And Prabowo's image since then has really gotten cleaned up a lot. And I think right now he's probably the most popular politician in the country, I would say, and quite likely the front runner to, to, to win next year. And uh, given his history and given what we see from other you know, autocratizing presidents around the world, I think anybody would be foolish to think that what's left of Indonesian democracy as it backslides, to the extent Indonesian democracy is still alive and kicking, if anyone thinks it would be safe uh, in the hands of a Prabowo presidency, I would uh, I would really beg to disagree. What is quite interesting is that I've seen recently that Prabowo actually enjoys quite a lot of popularity among young generations of Indonesians. And that is to some extent maybe in contrast to some other Southeast Asian countries like Thailand or even Myanmar, where there has been the re-energizing of these younger generations against the military dictatorships against the authoritarian power. So what is happening in Indonesia in this respect? That's a very good point. That's a really interesting comparison, especially given what just happened in Thailand. I mean, the way you're seeing this, a real kind of youth revolution and moving against the old power structure and the, you know, the monarchy and the military and really pushing for something new. Partly, I think it's the fact that just Indonesia hasn't produced an opposition party that can kind of fill that gap. That's partly a legacy of, of violence. The military regime came to power in the mid-1960s by, you know, massacring somewhat, I mean, close to a million people, completely destroying the left uh, end of the political spectrum. You just don't have that whole side of society represented in party politics. And so that's sort of lacking. The military is certainly more popular in Indonesia than in a place like Thailand or certainly a place like Myanmar. The Indonesian military played a you know, prominent role in the fight for independence against the Dutch. So we don't have a, uh, a political party that really opposes it. Probably the best candidate at any time was the daughter of the founding father of Indonesia, who was Sukarno. So Megawati Sukarno Putri, who was the, the second democratic president, first vice president and second president after democratization. One might think, okay, well, she could play an Aung San Suu Kyi-like role or, you know, do the sort of anti-military, but she's very, very close with the military and has always been very, very close with the military in part because the forces of pluralism in Indonesia see the military as their defender against political Islam. And so there it's a little bit, and we're moving increasingly toward, I think, is almost a, a Turkey analogy, not the Turkey of Erdogan, but the Turkey of military rule to the extent that protecting pluralism is a bigger issue than protecting democracy and a bigger concern than protecting democracy that you'll see in rising role of military and politics, even more than you already have political parties that are in other ways, very pluralistic, being very, very supportive of the military playing a big role in politics. And a lot of danger uh, lies in that. Back to your question about the election. I mean, some people are more worried about Anis Baswadan, who became governor of Jakarta uh, after Ahok, and is seen as you know closest with the Islamic side of Indonesian society. And so the worry is of Islamicization, if Anis wins. Um, and then there's the worry that authoritarianism will keep on the rise if Prabowo is elected. And I guess what I would say is that if Anis tries to Islamicize Indonesia, he will receive a lot of pushback. 
because there is a very, very strong, and I say a majority of Indonesians see their country as pluralistic and not as just you know, as an Islamic state. And we know there'll be pushback. I'm not sure there will be effective pushback if Prabowo or anybody else for that matter, simply just tries to keep rolling back democracy in the country. And, and this is why certainly students and civil society will oppose it, but they've really been kneecapped by these new omnibus laws, criminalizing protests, making it harder to oppose these autocratizing moves. So my worry is that you know, in the next, you know, next five years, even if Jokowi does step aside, as I think he will, that under the next president, we're going to keep seeing the sort of creeping autocratization and society is just not going to be strong enough to be able to push back. And I think this is um, a very interesting point that you've just made and goes back to what you were saying before about also the 2019 election and maybe the fear of if it was Prabowo who had won back then that Indonesia would turn more Islamic and Jokowi won and was re-elected. Perhaps a lot of Indonesian who have these democratic leanings have voted for him, but Jokowi himself is often far too willing to compromise democracy in the name of economic development, trying to take down some of the barriers or the barriers that he sees as barriers towards him doing his job, making sure that Indonesia can develop the way he wants it. But I would like to go back to one of the things that you talked about, that belief in pluralism that is quite deep-rooted in Indonesian society. And in your article, you mention this founding philosophy, Panchasila. How strong is this Panchasila still in Indonesia today? The concept or this founding philosophy goes back to Sukarno, who was the first president of Indonesia. So we're looking at the mid-40s. That's been a while. So how much of a strength does this founding philosophy still have in Indonesian society and how much of a potential remedy this could be against some of these backsliding forces that you've been discussing? Well, it could be a remedy for backsliding or it could be the source of backsliding. It could go either way. So Panchasila is, as a national philosophy, is basically an alternative to Islamism, but it's not secular. So Panchasila is, you know, it's five, five principles and it's all kind of mealy-mouthed. It's sort of, you know, very basic principles, but the first one is belief in a single God. So you cannot be an atheist in Indonesia. There is not religious freedom in that respect. And so this is sort of the compromise in which, so Panchasila is consistent with being a good pious Muslim, but it does mean that one doesn't have to be a pious Muslim specifically to be a good Indonesian. And so the ideas matter, but what matters even more is the way social forces array behind the ideas. So a really vital point here is that the, what I called earlier the traditionalist stream of political Islam, which is really based in East and Central Java, very, very highly populous parts of the country, like huge vote banks, if you will, that basically Indonesia has this ongoing capacity for an alliance between the political party that is the main proponent of Panchasila and of pluralism, which is the PDIP, which the current president comes from, and the Nandlatul Ulama, which is this massive, mostly rural organization in East and Central Java. And when those two team up, as they have in the last two elections, they have defeated Prabowo and the more the strict Islamic side of Indonesian civil society. So Panchasila is, is an electoral winner when it teams up with very pious Islamic civil society in Java. And the prospect is there. It's all set up for that to happen again. The PDIP's next candidate, Gondra Pranowo, who's the governor of central Java, presumably he will again try to have a ticket with 
a member of the Nadlatul Ulama. So again, a very religious figure, very pious figure. And that should be a winning formula. In that respect, Panchasila really can be the defense against backsliding happening through nativism, Islamicization, religious extremism, that kind of thing. But there's another way that democracy can die, and that's through what some of my colleagues have called counterpolarization. And this is, again, this Turkey military scenario, right? So the idea here is that, and it's more like the Suharto regime, the idea is that you know, the military and other conservative elites have to hold all the power to make sure that Indonesia doesn't polarize and come unglued and, and fall into chaos. Suharto loved Panchasila because for Suharto, Panchasila was the way to say, no, all these people talking about democracy, that's not Panchasila. All the people talking about Islam, that's not Panchasila. Human rights, no, no, Panchasila is where it's at. So it can really be an ideological weapon for authoritarianism as well. But in the current moment, because basically society is divided between Islamic and Panchasilaist extremes at the simplest level, the strength of that Panchasila stream has definitely kept democracy alive over the past decade. So if we were to look at the Indonesian example by using a broader lens, we discussed that the Indonesian democracy in many ways was a strategic gamble on the part of the authoritarian elites. And the gamble seemed to have worked because democracy has not displaced these elites like it happened in other countries in Southeast Asia or across the world. So these elites are still very much in power. But then in essence, that makes quite a fragile democracy because once you start feeling a threat, there is always the possibility of rollback. But if we were to maybe draw, let's say, three key lessons of the Indonesian democracy that we could learn from, what would they be? I think that the ways in which political elites can survive transition and thrive under democratic transition, particularly when they concede democratic reforms when they're relatively strong and still have the capacity to do well in elections, I think most autocrats wait way too long to contemplate democratic reform. And by the time they become really too late to do it on their own terms. And so I think that's one of the big lessons, not just of Indonesia, but of, uh, of East Asia more, more broadly. That's one big lesson. I think that uh, you know, another big lesson is that democracy doesn't have to be a negative for economic growth or for political stability. Authoritarianism in Indonesia, I think, created more religious conflict, anti-Chinese, anti-minority sentiments. I mean, these things have, have all in all, I would say, gotten better under democracy than they were under authoritarianism. But I think a third lesson here is that a country doesn't have to be what some would call kind of a lackey of the West or a running dog of the United States to be a vibrant democracy. Countries can become democracies on their own terms and for their own reasons. People often dismiss Asian democracy as a fraud because, well, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, well, these are just kind of American-built democracies, but they're not. They were they're democracies that have built themselves and have sustained themselves. And there's so much, you know, democratic backsliding in, you know, in Europe and in North America. You know, we can look at these cases in East Asia and say, these are really important examples to look at where severe polarization has been dealt with, where strong man rule has been dealt with, where civil society has remained relatively strong, protests has remained in the press. And so I think that you know, Indonesia, along with these other cases in Asia, show you how, especially when built on a foundation of sustained economic development, of a vibrant position in the world economy, it's not just the American empire that produces democracy around the world. Indonesia, I think, is a really good example. Indonesia has always been very non-aligned, very independent, very proud, sovereign country. It's not going to be anybody's running dog. I think for countries that look at democracy and say, well, we don't want to be another Taiwan or another Japan, which are just these American client states, as, as people see it, Indonesia is a nice counterexample to that. 
Unfortunately, we are out of time for any more questions this time around, but I'm glad that we finished it on a slightly positive note with these three broad lessons that we can take from the Indonesian example. Thank you, Dan, for joining the People Power Politics podcast and for talking to us about the fascinating state of Indonesian democracy. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you about this really exciting topic and let's hope that the February 2024 election will go the right way. Yes, let's hope. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Petra. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I'm Petra Alderman, Research Fellow at CEDA and the host of this People Power Politics podcast episode. I have been talking to Professor Dan Slater, James Orrin Murfin Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan. Thank you for listening to the People Power Politics podcast, brought to you by CEDA, the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. To learn more about our centre and the exciting work we do on these issues around the world, please follow us on Twitter at at CEDA underscore BHAM and visit our website using the link in the podcast description.